have one. There should be one in front of you, underneath the chair. To the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, I'll be reading Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible word. Let's pray. Father, help me. Stay true to the intended meaning of this text. We have nowhere else to go but to your word of life and to understand it and to be affected by it and changed, and developed, saved, and sanctified. So do that amongst us this morning, to the glory of our only hope, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We live in a very messy world, and there are points in history when it's much more messier than at other times. And that's, that, that's a reason why I have recommended a book that came out about three weeks ago to a number of people. It's called The War on the West. Read it. We live right now in George Orwell's novel, 1984. Now, I remember when I first read it, because I say I actually read it again this last year. When I first read it, okay, I thought it was a little absurd that in the novel, Orwell has the, the mass of the population under the totalitarian government control and the changing of language and meaning where people were confessing and get to the place where they believed. 
2 plus 2 equals 5. Of course it does. Who, who would challenge that? But now right here in America, in the South Bay, everywhere, people are calling two men, two women, marriage. People are confessing and afraid not to confess. Men can get pregnant. People everywhere, every family TV show that we have and watch, it's, it's everywhere that a biological male can call himself a woman and we are all supposed to affirm it and agree with it. We live in a time right now in America where you stand up and you say, look, I believe in judging individual human beings based upon their character and not based upon the color of their skin. It's Martin Luther King Jr. You say that now, you're the racist. Two plus two equals five. But a biblical worldview, it, a, a biblical Christian has the way they perceive this present evil world changed, formed. And thus it does also form their politics, just as it informs their worldview, particularly in times where there's a crystal clear anti-Christian, anti-God, anti-Jesus, cultural, slash political war. Okay. But those politics that any serious biblical Christian is having formed in them, they are not the core. They're not the foundation. They are not the essence of Christianity. The gospel is. And they're distinct. Our text this morning is the essence. Politics, worldview, how to deal in the culture are down here on this plane and they're the fruit of biblical thinking. But the gospel, Christianity, the essence of it is on a different plane that produces that. It's up here and don't mix them up. So whether a person is, is living in a free country with the freedom of thought, the freedom of expression, the freedom of speech, or they're living in a totalitarian earthly hell as millions are right now. The gospel is still 
for them. Because the core of Christianity is not about governments and politics. The core of Christianity, this is one way to say it. And the way I'll say it this morning because our text causes me to. The core of Christianity is about your death. I remember at 19 years old, 20 years old, 21, 22, a young Christian back in the early 80s, and I would at times find myself needing to, and I would say, you do to fellow Christians. You, you do realize that Christianity is very much about death and dying and the judgment to come, don't you? I would get looks that seemed to express, huh? Never, never thought of such a thing. All right. This text, for all who come to Jesus, is saying He's delivered us from the terror fear of what death will bring. Now, that's different. Not just, doesn't say here, he's delivered you from the sadness of death. Death is, death is sad because it means that we lose a lot of stuff that we love. Like, like a husband, like a wife, like children or grandchildren, friends. Food and sports. And it is a loss. Death. But it's not necessarily terrifying. Because if there is no God, it's just falling asleep into non-conscious non-existence. And that is sad. But if we are created beings made in the image of that creator, and this God is holy and just and worthy of our trust and of our love and of our dependence upon him, and he is therefore perfectly and righteously and judiciously as a judge angry at our rebellion and our belittling of His very person and being, well then, death isn't just sad. But it's fear-inducing if we face God without that problem being rectified and fixed. Listen to the reality that the Apostle Paul states here in Romans 2. They show the work of God's law, right and wrong, that is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse them 
or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The law of God is written on every heart, telling us that we will give an account to our Maker. Now listen to what our text says in light of that. Verse 15, Hebrews 2. Jesus came to die in order to deliver, rescue, release all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Slavery to that fear eats at all of us. And if you say, Joe, no, 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 no. I know lots of people where it's not eating at them. They're not even thinking about it. Well, I'm going to say, no, it is eating at them. And I know... I do know, I know that unbelievers, they don't wake up every day with this consciousness, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And what might that mean? I know that. I'm not saying they are. But it is that deep down fear of what is death that they're enslaved to, that drives them constantly to distract themselves. From that inevitable reality. Because we all know we're all on the same conveyor belt. Some are just closer to the end when it drops off. But whether you're a teenager in here or you're very old like Bob, we're all on this conveyor belt. And most people through this life suppress that inevitable because it's a defense mechanism. It's what we do. I mean, look, another way to say that is the enslavement to the fear of death causes us to constantly shove it down into our subconsciousness so we can get on with our daily task and often do the task and that'll distract you from thinking. In evaluating. I think underneath all of this, here's where I'm going. I, th I think the author would agree. I think that's the assumption about humanity that, that, that he's pinning here. It is the fear of death which drives us to escapism in all kinds of forms, whether it's drug addiction. Alcoholism, philosophy, philosophical rationalizations, whether it's money-making, workaholism, entertainment, entertainment, entertainment. And the only hope is that something happens 
that deals with the problem of death and meeting our Creator. And that's what our text is about. So, this is the third week, really, in the text. I spent the last two weeks going very slowly. First week, just dealing with what the text says about Jesus' incarnation. Last week, what the text says about that big word there, propitiation. So now that we have those two set, I want us to then walk ourselves through this text, see how those two truths, Jesus' incarnation and his propitiation, relate to setting us free from the fear of death. So, let's go to the text and follow the flow of thought. In verse 14, first thing he tells us, we are human beings. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. Human beings. Next thing he says, point two. That's why Christ became a human being. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. That is, God the Creator, the second person of the Trinity, became truly human. He is and will ever be now that one person with two Distinct natures. Thirdly, Christ became human so that he could die. Since, therefore, children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise became human, partook of the same things, in order that through death, his death. So Christ became human precisely so he could die, which leads to the fourth point that by his death, he destroyed the devil's power over death. See it? So that through death, he might destroy. The one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, which leads to the fifth point. That the effect of his defeating the devil in this way is that we who believe are delivered from slavery to the fear of death. Verse 15 is right there. He died to destroy the devil's power over death and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We are freed from outright terror of what death would mean. Or another way to say it, we're freed from living in the denial of the reality of that death by which causes us to distract ourselves with all kinds of things to, to avoid 
the inevitable. Believers are those who now by the Spirit can look death with their eyes wide open and not be terrorized by it. They don't have to self-medicate their mind because of it. All right, that's what it says now. The question is, how does the death of Christ defeat the power of the devil and death first? That's the first question. What's he saying? And that's what verse 17 is about. Verse 17 is the answer. It explains how Jesus defeated the devil and his power over your death. Verse 17 explains that and thus how you are freed from slavery to the fear of that death. Verse 14, get the flow now. Go very slowly. Verse 14, he says that Christ became like us, a human being. Why? In order that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Verse 17 says Christ became like us. Repeating it here. Why? Became human. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God in order to make propitiation for our sins. So it seems clear that Christ destroyed the devil's power over death by his high priestly work of making propitiation for our sins. He'll go on to say this in chapter 9 of Hebrews. Jesus has appeared once for all time at the end of the ages in order to put away sin by sacrifice of himself. So, so Christ became a human being so that he could be our high priest. So that as a high priest, he could offer the sacrifice, which is himself in death. In other words, verse 17 is unfolding what he said in verse 14. He needed to become human in order to die. Verse 14. Now verse 17, he needed to become human. Why? In order to die. Or, but he explains the death now. In order to make propitiation for our sins. So while verse 14's goal in the death of Christ is, he said what? His goal is to destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. That's the goal of the death. Verse 17, the goal of death is propitiation. Do you see it yet? 
Verse 17 is telling us how the death of Jesus strips the devil of his power. In your death, Jesus destroys the power of the devil over death by making propitiation for our sins. That's what our text is telling us. So remember, last week, what propitiation is very briefly. To make propitiation means that Jesus in his death takes away God's just, holy, judicial punishment. Anger takes it away from us. It's diverted. It's gone that we deserved. In other words, when Jesus died, you're referring to not only the creator of the universe, but a perfectly sinless human being who was slaughtered on the cross. He didn't die for his own sin. He didn't have any. His death is the bearing of the guilt and the punishment for our sins, not his own. And when our punishment, therefore, was meted out by God upon Jesus on the cross, God's justice in full against our sin was satisfied. And the result of God's just anger and wrath against us who are in Christ, it's removed. That's what propitiation means. God's justice is satisfied because the penalty of wrath that we deserved was poured out against all of our sins, which were imputed to Jesus on the cross. So what does it mean that Jesus' propitiatory death destroyed the devil who had the power of death? What does that mean? Well, let's go at it. You know how you do this? You read your Bible, you put up an option. Okay, so option one. Does it mean, look at that, Jesus did it, therefore we in this room don't have to die physically. It, 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 it does not mean that. It doesn't even mean we might not die a very painful death. Jesus sat on the beach and he looked at Peter after his resurrection and he told him by what kind of brutal, torturous death you, Peter, will die in order to glorify God. So that's not what it means when he says he destroyed the one who had the power of death. Okay? Well, maybe it means now Satan can't kill us. Well, I don't know. But I do know it doesn't mean that. I mean, Jesus said clearly to the church in Revelation chapter 2, quote, Do not fear 
what you were about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. So, doesn't mean that. So, reading the context of our passage carefully and slowly as we have done, I think it means that the only weapon that Satan can use to destroy us in death is our sin. It's a terrifying thing to die without having come to Jesus as a Savior. You remember how Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 15? I read it earlier in this service. The sting There is a sting for many in death. The sting of death is sin. The power of your sin is the law. But thanks be to God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ who delivered us from God's law. He delivered us from God's rules in the sense that We are not under them trying to say, look, am I good enough? Because no one is. Only Jesus was good enough who fulfilled the law and took away sin. You don't want to go meet your Maker without having the sin eradicated from your account. And it is only through faith, trust in Jesus. As we sing this morning, we rely on His blood, meaning His death for us. The only reason anybody goes to hell is because they go there and present their own law doing. Which is another way of saying present their own condemnation of their own sin. Because they have not sufficed. The writer is saying that because our sin is forgiven... And the wrath of God is turned away from us, believer. He's saying, therefore, the devil is disarmed. The one true weapon and scheme that Satan has against every person is to accuse them of sin to keep their eyes blinded to what I'm saying right now. So Paul put it. Satan has blinded the eyes of the unbeliever. 
His scheme is to keep people away from hearing and actually grasping this message, the gospel, to keep them away from Christ, the only one who forgives sins and removes the wrath of God that is deserved by all of us. So what is one of the benefits of Christ's sacrificial death? For those who have come to be justified by his life, he says it in our text. One of those benefits is to be set free from slavery. Delivered. Verse 15. To deliver all those who through fear of death they were subject to lifelong slavery, delivered from the paralyzing fear of what dying might mean to face God laden with my sin. Oh, believer, Jesus has freed us from that. The freedom is the freedom from the fear that dying would mean a real terrifying judgment. Because for all believers, for them, Christ bore our judgment. And His perfect, sinless, human obedience and righteousness has been imputed to us, to our account. And therefore, in your death, there is no fear. Not true for every human being. True for every believer, as Paul would say. To be absent from the body for us is to be present with the Savior. To be present with Christ. Listen to the writer from forward in chapter 9 for a moment. Just hear it. So Christ, having offered once... Excuse me, for Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's what he did 2,000 years ago. He will come back. He will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. If your sins are forgiven, and God's just punishment has been paid and satisfied, then His wrath is removed from you, and that means that the devil is rendered powerless. You're free. You're free in this life to be faithful. Listen to Jesus's Stunning words from Luke 21. He says to his disciples, and thus to us, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers 
and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. I didn't get to the stunning part yet. We live in a time as Christians in America, I didn't think we would live in. We're the simplest, commonsensical, axiomatic truths just 20 years ago. If you hold to them now, when asked, it could cost you your job, your reputation. No, I feel for you, my dear fellow human being made in the image of God. That yes, you have male genitalia and you feel that you're a female. I, I, don't, I, I can't get inside your soul to know what's really going on in it. That's a tragedy. Life is a tragedy. God's judgment is upon all of us. But no, you're not a woman, and I won't affirm it. I feel for you, dear practicing homosexual in sin and as a fellow human being in brokenness, but all homosexual sex, no matter what you call it, it is Sin, they will hate you. Jesus says, for my name's sake. Okay, let me get to the studying, the next sentence. Let me go back and grab it and then flow it into Jesus' next sentence. You'll be delivered up by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Huh? Jesus, you just said they killed us. And not a hair of your head. By your endurance, in other words, by your faithfulness in the onslaught against Christianity in America, in governments, in the culture, in the schools, and everywhere, he said, by your faithfulness to the truth, you're, you're exclusionary. Yes. Jesus is the only way for you to be saved from your sin or there's a wrath coming. You bigot! Religious bigot! Will you be faithful? By your endurance, you'll gain your lives. What's the power for that? He's delivered us 
from the enslaving torment of death. Why? Not just because I won't be sinful, but as we read in 1 Corinthians this morning. And as Paul says, to live is Christ. To die is actually gain. Because he believed the gospel. It's not the end. And that's what Jesus is driving at when he says, oh, by the way, not a hair of your head. Don't worry about it. They won't touch you. They can't touch you. You're going to live forever, Christian, as a human being resurrected to immortality. Not a hair of your head, Peter or Paul, both executed by the Roman government, will perish. That's their power. Freedom from the slavery of the fear of death to remain faithful. Do you see how practical understanding the gospel is? I mean real biblical practicality, not what goes for so much of that junk in churches where they really just point first what do people, well, that'd be practical to get along this week. But gospel, dead earnest practicality. Do you see how practical theology is? To know what it is to have the gnawing anxiety that controls and drives your life. To have been enslaved to the fear of death. And then... To come using your mind, your intellect, with your heart and affections. I understand that now. I embrace the doctrine that Christ propitiated my sins. And as a result, Satan has no power to make me confess two plus two equals four. I will not do it. So you can end the novel differently. I won't, you won't, believer, because our greatest enemy, our sin, which would destroy us if we died cloaked in it. It's been removed. It's been replaced with Jesus' perfect righteousness before the judge. Our Creator. No wonder Jesus said, You shall think, take in information, hear the, hear the truth of the gospel. Thus, you, will, you shall know the truth. 
in the truth, and it'll set you free. Free from fear of God as your, as your judge and your executioner because Christ made propitiation for your sins. And now he is nothing but a merciful, great, high priest. And God is your daddy. Crying, Abba, Father. Jesus set you free from slavery to go be faithful. One more thing. Notice he added verse 18. Because being free from what happens to us at death, that's one thing. process of dying. That's another thing. It's a real thing. The process of losing and leaving behind a spouse or parents or children or grandchildren, friends. Or the process of, do I need to go through Alzheimer's first? Cancer treatments? How many replacements in my body am I going to have before? How many open heart surgeries? All of those are terrible temptations to despair. So the writer says in verse 18, For because Jesus himself has suffered I'm going to translate this from the Greek, literally. For because he, Jesus himself, has suffered being tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. That being tempted, I'm almost positive that that participle should be taken as a result clause. The suffering brings temptation that Jesus himself had. He not only came to die to be the substitutionary lamb for our sins, but he also did come to die in order to experience our Suffering in his own human suffering and his own human dying. In order to look you in the eye and sympathize with the temptations that, that come with our own prospect and experiences of suffering and dying. Text literally says his suffering is essentially what brought the temptation. And the temptation here is not referring to turn that rock into bread or lust or greed or, or sinful anger. That's not it here. It's the temptation to despair and to get angry or bitter at the goodness of God who's letting you experience this as you go through the process. 
of suffering and dying. He's there. He walks with us. He's present by the Spirit. The Father has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So in our trials, all the way up until we take our last breath in death, we have a merciful high priest to help us in our dying. He knows from his own experience what you really are going through. Oh, what a Savior. Let's worship him. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. As your apostle Paul told us in Romans 8, you didn't spare him, but you gave him up for us all. And therefore, how shall you not also with him and by him give to us all things that we need to endure to the end? For nothing, nothing ever shall be able to separate anybody who has come to receive your son ever separate us from your love for us. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.